Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And well, welcome to all our first movers around the globe. Great to have you with us this Monday in the holiday season, truly in gear. Everyone ready for some well-deserved cheer, though Wall Street's carolers not yet in the clear. Lots of high seas to hit before closing out the year. And to give you a sense, the seas on our Christmas crunch list include central banks, the Fed, the ECB and the Bank of England, all expected to deliver fresh rate hikes this week. And from central bankers, we have heard on high to long-awaited CPI. New U.S. consumer price data out tomorrow. That's Tuesday after a rough read on factory gate prices sunk stocks on Friday. Things won't be merry if Tuesday's prices are a little hairy. And C is also for crypto. Sam Bankman-Fried is coming to town or at least expected to testify remotely at a U.S. congressional hearing on the FTX failure tomorrow. And C is also for consolidation, the biggest healthcare merger of the year just announced with biotech firm Amgen buying drug developer Horizon Therapeutics in a whopping $28 billion deal after a heated global bidding war. And finally, C for cloud. Microsoft today buying a 4% stake in the London Stock Exchange as part of a 10-year cloud computing services deal. Microsoft will provide the exchange with next generation data analytics. And in the meantime, U.S. stocks trying to move higher after a, let's call it cloudy week, with 3% plus losses for the S&P and the Nasdaq. Europe a bit softer too, following red arrows across the Asia session. Investors will likely be cautious ahead of those expected rate hikes this week. And of course, also keeping a keen eye on the energy complex. A cold snap in Europe, focusing attention once again on soaring electricity prices and the potential for power outages. The EU Commission President Ursula von der Leyen warning of substantial gas shortages in the new year if the Ukraine war drags on. We're showing you pictures of the UK, I believe, there. But we do begin today's show in Ukraine. And Ukraine's defence minister saying the nation's counteroffensive will resume when the ground freezes, as it will be easier to move heavy military equipment. Meanwhile, President Volodymyr Zelensky is attending a virtual G7 meeting today to discuss further aid for Ukraine. Will Ripley joins us now from Kyiv. Well, good to have you with us. President Zelensky once again pleading, I think, for more support as winter deepens, particularly given they're battling the loss, I believe, of around half of their energy system infrastructure. I know you spoke to the defence ministers too. What did you speak to him about with regards further protection for the skies and, of course, this critical infrastructure with it? Well, yeah, you know, the defense minister, Oleski Reznikov, Julia, told me what we've heard from the Ukrainians before, that air defense is their number one priority right now, uh, simply because of what's been happening, this nearly constant uh, bombardment by the Russians. I mean, we were just down in Odessa, the southern Ukrainian port city that's had its power grid hammered repeatedly. They were out of power for three days last week when Russia lobbed dozens of missiles at this country and their power station took a direct hit. And then over the weekend, these Iranian 
Indian-made kamikaze drones attacked the power grid again. There were 15 drones fired. The Ukrainians shot down 10 of them, but five of them detonated when they hit their target. These explosive drones can cause severe damage. In this case, they knocked out power to nearly everyone in the Odessa region. You're talking about one and a half million people. So when I spoke with the defense minister, the first thing I asked about was Ukraine's plan of action in responding and firing back when these attacks happen. What's your best strategy to defend against these kamikaze drone attacks from Russia? Every day, we're trying to find the best solutions. They're targeting our infrastructure. They're trying to ruin our energy supply, water supply, heat supply systems, because they cannot to have a success against armed forces of Ukraine. They're trying to fight with the civilian population. That's why they're trying to, to, to stop the energy or water to the houses, especially during this winter time. Have you been given an explanation why the Patriot missile defense systems have not arrived yet? Uh, it's a long discussion with our uh, partners because it's a very sophisticated and expensive systems. Today we have more than eight different systems. And we got HIMARS and we have M270, we have Mars, we have LRU from the France. So I think that uh, Patriot also will be in our battlefield, but in the next stage. Interesting that he seems confident that the Patriots will arrive in Ukraine in what he calls the next stage, a stage that will likely include counteroffensives to try to reclaim uh, currently occupied territory by the Russians. Uh, one thing, though, that they're not getting uh, in this new round of defense aid that was approved by the United States, some $275 million in financial uh, aid for the war, are cluster munition warheads. These are really controversial. The Russians have been using them quite a bit, but they have great potential of uh, hurting civilians because they essentially can uh, drop these tiny munitions over a very wide area. And if they don't explode when they hit the ground, they're almost like little mines that people could uh, accidentally walk into. Uh, but the Ukrainian are asking for those. What they are getting, uh, and the Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky uh, had a phone conversation with the U.S. President Joe Biden where he thanked President Biden for this latest $275 million assistance package. It includes ammunition for high-mobility artillery rocket systems, 80,155-millimeter artillery rounds, uh, counter-unmanned aerial systems equipment, counter-air defense capability, ambulances, medical equipment, about 150 generators, as well as field equipment. All of it badly needed, Julia, but the number one item on their list, those more advanced missile defense systems to try to stave off uh, these Russian air attacks. Absolutely. An important interview, too. Well, they're at a critical moment for the country. Paul Ripley there. Thank you. To Afghanistan now. Three attackers have been killed by security forces after a hotel in Kabul came under fire. Emergency services say 21 people were taken to hospital. According to an eyewitness, gunmen attacked a Chinese hotel in the Shah-i Noor area. Smoke was seen rising from the building and blasts and gunfire were heard. To China now, and a top health official is warning the Omicron variant is spreading quickly across the nation. This as Beijing, of course, is slowly moving away from its zero COVID policy. Chrissy Lustout has all the details. Residents across China are bracing for a surge in cases as the country unwinds from its tough zero COVID policy. In Beijing, many businesses are closed. Restaurants that are open are deserted. And some of the biggest crowds seen have been outside pharmacies and COVID-19 testing booths. It's better to just protect yourselves, cover yourselves, and don't let the elderly go out too much. That's all. 
Uh, residents are wary of an exit wave or a flare-up in infection. Now, one factor here is China's low vaccination rate, especially among the elderly. For the most at-risk over-80 age group, only 40 percent have received booster shots as of December 1. That's according to official data. And another factor, just not enough medical capacity in China. Look, while the U.S. has at least 25 critical care beds per 100,000 people, that's according to the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, China has fewer than four for the same number. Last Wednesday, China dropped most of its strict zero-COVID curbs following protests against the hardline policy. Mass testing has been rolled back, and some people are allowed to quarantine at home. And today, China announced that it will eliminate one of its digital track and trace services. Now, other systems, though, including its health QR code, remain in place. And it's trying to slowly let's go of its tough pandemic policy. One of its top disease experts is warning of a surge in cases. In an interview with the state-run Xinhua News Agency at the weekend, Zhong Nanshan called for an intensified COVID-19 booster drive, especially as China's spring festival travel season nears. He says this, quote, preparations need to be beefed up. I suggest those planning to travel back home get a booster shot so that even with COVID-19 infection, they don't become seriously ill, unquote. Zhong added that Omicron's fatality rate is in line with the flu, effectively downplaying the risks of COVID-19 as restrictions slowly ease across China. Christy Liu Stout, CNN, Hong Kong. And we're hearing about what could be a leap forward in the quest for the holy grail of clean energy. The Washington Post and Financial Times reporting that scientists have made a major breakthrough using nuclear fusion, with the U.S. Energy Department set to make a big announcement on Tuesday. Our chief climate correspondent, Bill Weir, joins us now. Bill, great to have you on the show. I read everything that I could find when I saw this um, at the weekend, and it replicates a process, and you could explain better than me, which takes place in the sun. Um, How exciting! Excited should we be about this? Can you explain the process and um, and where we are today? We think sure. Well, we can be cautiously optimistic. The running joke about this technology is that it's just a decade away <laughs> and always will be. But if the news yeah. is that they've cracked this, where they actually have a process that takes that actually produces more energy than is put in. It's a game changer. Here's the dream. They've had this since the 50s, is you take hydrogen atoms and you heat them up as hot as the sun. You contain that maybe with super strong magnets, the kind of magnets that could lift a battleship. In this particular instance, Lawrence Livermore Laboratory, they use the biggest laser in the country to fire at this hydrogen plasma. And they say the process did create more energy that they put in. That is sort of the Wright Brothers moment, uh, you know, the first flight. Uh, But the data is not complete. In fact, it surprised the scientists, according to the Financial Times reporting, and it created so much energy it might have broken some of their equipment. So that complicates uh, the the data gathering going forward now. But again, this all comes down to Jennifer Granholm, Secretary of Energy, confirming what they found tomorrow. Okay, so it actually potentially broke the measuring tools, which is yeah. vaguely, vaguely concerning, but we hope it's a positive thing. Um, but to your point about we're just a decade away, I guess we have been saying that to do the quick mental calculation for, what, seven decades now. Right. I mean, can you put any kind of um, time horizon on this to when we might be able to be using this kind of technology? Because I've already seen plenty of skeptics out there saying this can't be an excuse. The hopes surrounding this cannot be an excuse for tackling the things that we need to tackle today. 
That's a fantastic point. Yeah, the biggest priority should be decarbonization. Stop using the fuels that burn and switching to the fuels that don't, like fusion here, which would create no long-term nuclear waste. is super cheap, super clean, super safe. You could, it's a star in a box, basically, but you could blow it out like a match. So the dream of this is there. But you, you've seen in all sectors, Julia, about what happens when there's these breakthroughs, these tipping points in technology, and there's so much money now pouring into with the inflation Reduction Act here, other places around the world. Uh, they've been building this giant machine to try this in the south of France for a while. Oxford University has. So there's sort of a race towards these new technologies. It's how soon we get there, you know, depends on so much. But we've seen how, so how fast uh, humans can, can move in the right direction if properly motivated. Um, and so everybody is anxious. I know people in the scientific community have been buzzing about this possible breakthrough. So we can't wait to find out tomorrow more details. Yeah, I mean, the U.S. Energy Department will hear from them tomorrow. But I have seen billions of dollars flowing into these private startups that are working on um, sort of nuclear focused uh, energy and technologies of the future. Can I just ask very briefly, because... I'm sure people out there are asking, what energy went into creating this? And does it become, in an ideal scenario, a sort of reinforcing cycle where you use the energy produced to produce more energy? Or is there still perhaps... Yeah, it's the process. Yeah. So the fuel source of this is, is hydrogen, which is everywhere, and, and lithium, which is hugely abundant. So right. it's not uh, as intensive as mining cobalt on the floor of the ocean, for example, in order to do EVs. Um, the, the promise of this is that the raw materials are so cheap and plentiful uh, that it could be the breakthrough. And unlike nuclear fission, which splits those, those atoms instead of mashing them together, uh, you don't have to go dig for uranium and plutonium. And, you know, think about uh, what happens to that loose nuke material in this, this facility. So the, the, the whole thing is very promising, ideally. But to your point before, uh, priority one now is decarbonizing. Uh, you know, the renewables are so cheap now, but they're just adding more capacity, not really replacing uh, coal and oil at the rate that a lot of scientists say they should. But it's hugely promising when we have these breakthrough moments. Uh, Chief Climate correspondent and um, scientific genius, actually, to make that simple for us to understand. <laughs> Bill Weir, thank you. Thanks, we'll Julia. speak again soon. Okay, from a fascinating energy future to a hoped-for revenue booster, Elon Musk today relaunching his Twitter blue paid verification feature after last month's pretty chaotic rollout. Higher prices this time for people who've subscribed through Apple. Twitter hoping users will check the halls this holiday season and bypass the Cook Complex. Paula Monica joins me now. That's just one of many topics we could be discussing with regards to Twitter this week. But let's start with the, the blue check mark here and the 30% premium approximately if you do this via iOS and Apple, of course, because he's making the adjustment for the fact that they charge fees for doing this. Yeah, exactly. Elon Musk has not been shy on Twitter since he bought Twitter about complaining about that iOS tax and, you know, concerns about Apple supposedly also pulling back on advertising on Twitter. So right now, Elon Musk does not seem to be too thrilled with Tim Cook and everyone else in Cupertino. So if you are an iOS user looking to become verified through Twitter Blue, it will cost you more, $11, as you pointed out, as opposed to the standard $8 that is going to uh, still be the price on the web and presumably uh, through Google Android devices as well. Obviously, a lot going on here with Twitter. And, you know, I think it remains to be seen if the problems that 
Twitter had when they first announced that anyone could get a blue check mark and you had all these fake accounts impersonating the likes of Eli Lilly as well as even Elon Musk and Tesla, you know, will that be able to go away? Have Twitter's engineers, the whoever's left there, uh, be able to figure this out and stomp out these fake accounts and impersonators? Yeah, they've said a phone number has to back it up now, haven't they? I mean, I've got two numbers attached to my phone. So there's a little bit margin of error there, but I guess it still ties back to me ultimately. Um, he also sent a warning about bots this weekend and the action that they're taking on that. They've also talked about revealing some of the information behind shadow bans that suppress apparently some users' material that they put on the web. The other thing that's caught my attention in the last few days, Paul, and I want to get your take on this, is um, the suggestion from certain quarters and high-profile quarters that abusive content is rising on the platform. Elon Musk himself has come out and said that's factually incorrect, but I don't see anybody using any data from anywhere. What's the truth here? Do we have anything factual that we can back up either side's argument with? Yeah, it is very difficult right now, uh, Julia, because obviously it is highly anecdotal. You have people that are pointing to some of these abusive tweets, neo-Nazi tweets, allegedly, and Elon Musk obviously saying that, no, this is not the case, that Twitter is doing a better job under his ownership of stomping out bots and abusive accounts. And I think the truth probably lies somewhere in between, as is often the case with things like this. But it's going to be a continued problem. I mean, I know that there are definitely many Fortune 500 companies that are wary of Twitter now, and they are not advertising there anymore. And that has been a problem for Elon Musk. But again, what's one of the reasons why he's doing the Twitter blue? They're trying to find another revenue stream to potentially replace advertising because there definitely is a sense, correctly or not, that Twitter is a far more toxic place under Elon Musk than it was beforehand. Yeah, advertisers are clearly nervous, but um, I just, if people are going to make accusations on Twitter or any other platform, it's got to be backed up with some form of data. Otherwise, everybody's just more confused, not less. Um, Yeah, and the problem is that, to be fair to Elon Musk, I mean, he can put out as much data as he wants, but there's going to be skepticism about it because they're no longer a public company. So I think a lot of people take any numbers from him with a grain of salt. Yeah, Um, yeah, for better or worse, but... Don't make accusations without backing it up with data yep. at the end. Yep. Yeah. Paula Monica, thank you. Okay, straight ahead. Greece is the word. The country is promoting itself as a go-to investment opportunity. We'll hear why next. Plus, all change at the top of shipping giant Maersk. We have the incoming CEO on the challenges that lie ahead. That's all coming up. Stay with CNN. Welcome back to First Move. Now, despite an economic slowdown across much of Europe, in Greece, the government is forecasting 5.6% growth in 2022, with a comeback for tourism and strong domestic consumption both playing their part. Foreign investors have also taken note with foreign direct investment or FDI flows hitting $5 billion last year. Yet with an energy crisis raging, an uncertain global picture and an election for Greece on the horizon, the question is, can the growth be maintained? Athens has been flying the 
the flag here in New York, where it's been promoting itself as an investment opportunity. Yanos Kontopoulos is the CEO of Ethics Group, the parent company of the Greek Stock Exchange. Yanos, fantastic to have you with us. You're back in Greece now. We were going to have this conversation last week when you were in New York. So just to let our viewers know this, it's clear, I think, that Greece has been incredibly resilient this year in the face of huge challenges. The big question is what's been your message to potential investors and to those outside Greece about what the next 12 months brings? Well, uh, look, Julia, it's, um, it's one of those weird uh, global cycles, as you uh, mentioned before. And, and in, in these types of environments, you want to find the idiosyncratic story. And Greece is certainly one. It's coming uh, back out of a very difficult period that lasted for a long time. But over the last uh, few years, it has been staging that recovery, despite the uh, additional problems that we've had. So the main message is this is the time. There are plenty of opportunities and we want to present them to the outside world. And what questions have you been getting from investors? Because as much as you can send the message, it's always what they respond with that's fascinating to me as well. So what have been the common questions, whether you've been in in New York or over in Europe? Because I know you've also been meeting uh, potential investors and just talking about the Greek story there, too. Well, I'll tell you, I'll start with a weird one in the sense that uh, the the question that we didn't get, we had a side meeting in uh, London about 10 days ago with the prime minister Uh, with some of the largest international investors. And uh, there were about 20 of them in the room. None of them asked them in an hour about elections. Uh, That was the first meeting. But uh, leaving that aside, I think that that was interesting. I'm not saying the question didn't come up, but uh, I I was stunned that it didn't come up in that particular meeting. Then on the the other front, I think what's what's interesting, what I found interesting is that uh, there were very distinct questions about the source of uh, funding uh, in terms of investment uh, sources that are coming, for whether they're coming from uh, Saudi Arabia or China or the U.S., it was those type of questions and the willingness of the Greek government to uh, consider a specific projects. So I, I think it's not a question of if, it's a question of who. That's a, a fascinating point to make. Um, if I sort of had to make a guess, I would say perhaps some concern about potential future Chinese investment. Can I ask what the response was. And I appreciate you're not a member of the government and you're not part of the cabinet, but but obviously you are in charge of the the broader group that covers the stock exchanges. Because whether it's an investment in in private companies or public companies there, it's it's an interesting question at this moment in time. Look, my my sense is that the answer that was given in a a very pointed question in that particular direction was that um, I don't think there's any particular expectation, any particular plan uh, to uh, source these types of funds from uh, China or a particular program in the works. If anything, I was surprised to say that, uh, to see actually that uh, Prime Minister, I think, mentioned that there are some uh, uh, nearshoring type of activities uh, generally available for, for Europe that are originating from China and that Greece is particularly open to them. So again, maybe the reverse was the, 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 interesting, the interesting aspect here too. Yeah, it's almost what you're not asked versus um, what the truth is, which is quite fascinating. (laughs) Um, What about in terms of your role as well? Because I know we saw uh, foreign capital leave. And as you said, it's interesting, even at this point in time, that that political stability is seen rather than fear of instability. Um, But when I look at the Athens exchange itself, there's still a significant weighting in the banks, utilities and energy. And I think perhaps the obvious question for those even looking on an index level is, non-performing loans, which has been an issue in the past? Is there risk still of action with the banks or even things that other European countries have been talking about and in certain cases acted upon, which is 
impose a windfall tax on energy companies. What can you tell me about those concerns? Well, again, l let me emphasize the almost the opposite uh, surprise here. I, I mean, I think if we held this event even uh, last year, we would be getting the question about uh, question marks about banks on the level of NPLs. Uh, instead, we actually got a question about a windfall tax on the banks. Forget about the energy companies, which means what? That the the banks have had uh, exceptional have had an exceptional year. And so the momentum had been building since 21 in terms of profitability. They had a very, very uh, successful year in 2022 so far. Deposits are actually growing still in the system, which you would think that they would be a problem because of the energy shock and how is that hitting the, the average consumer in Greece. Apparently, it hasn't hit the average consumer or at least the aggregate. Uh, so it's, it's, for me, it's actually very revealing the fact that uh, that question came up. By the way, that that answer was very definitive. It was that there was no consideration for a windfall tax on banks. Uh, on the other hand, on the energy side, Greece was, uh, if I recall well, one of the first countries to impose a windfall tax, mm -hmm. and then the the rest of Europe actually followed through. But I don't think there was the message was there was no intention to kind of accentuate this. So I think it's going to remain steady as long as there are excess profits of that sort. So the the net news there, I think, is stability. Yes, what's there will remain because it's certainly one of the things. Um, the, one of the things that I heard simply from the willingness of the government to, to take action in the first place. Um, I think one of the other things is building out the representation on the stock exchange and perhaps new listings or, or dual listings. What's the prospect for getting fresh listings and companies to come to, Gre to Greece, whether it's a, a primary listing or, or even a secondary listing for those that operate internationally? Talk to me about that prospect. Sure. Yes, uh, and you so sigh before you answer. Is, <laughs> it's a challenge. Yeah, yes. Well, you know, th this is my personal challenge. Uh, of but course. I, look, I'm, I'm, I'm very, I'm very optimistic, uh, primarily because I think we're getting a very good signal first from the government because they have been privatizing a lot of assets over time, but they haven't privatized something recently uh, via the stock exchange, and it appears that they will be actually privatizing a, a, a top jewel asset, the uh, Athens International Airport. Uh, sometime next year, and most likely, we don't know yet for sure, it might happen uh, via the Athens Stock Exchange. And it's a large enough item that I think will prompt other uh, companies to follow through. So that's that's aspect number one. The other one, I think, where, as you alluded to, is the different type of representation that we want of different uh, you know, sectors of the economy. Um, if you were to look, for example, one that's unexpected is technology. Uh, the uh, the depth of uh, the technological development since the you know the, the in the midst of the crisis has been tremendous. Greeks have become a lot more entrepreneurial, uh, I think, as a result of the crisis, and a lot of them are the young Greeks, which have been uh, putting money and effort into technology. As a result, we've had a couple of unicorns uh, already coming up, and uh, I think some of them are slated to come to the stock exchange. Now, if it's a big ticket item and it's technology, you, you're likely to end up somewhere in the US uh, initially. So we need to be imaginative on how we attract them back here. And I think the, the way around it and something that's consistent with our plans is the dual listing. Greece and Europe has to offer actually insurance uh, to those technology companies, which are still in the initial stages, however successful they've been so far. List both and you know have the US audience, but uh, uh, at the other hand, have also the, the the Greek and the European audience, giving them a completely different source of funds and navigating through a very, uh, I would say, you know, challenging cycle for, for technology anyway. But technology is a big factor. And the other one that we aim for is shipping. Yeah, 
which makes perfect sense. I was going to say, though, a dual listing is vitally important if you've got a homegrown unicorn that's perhaps attracted to the United States because it can get later stage funding, but then looks to list. If you can encourage them to even do a dual listing or, or think about Greece, it's vitally important for, for, for many reasons, I think, but also to show some support for, um, for the home nation, particularly if the business environment is supportive. Um, Thank you so much for your time today. The one thing we also should talk about in terms of the prospect for Greece, and it's very clear behind you, is the relative weather, I think, in Greece relative yeah, yeah, to the rest a, of the Just look at that. A, we have blue skies behind you. We certainly don't have <laughs> that here today. degrees. <laughs> no, yes, sure. exactly. Yes. Janis, yes. great to have Why you not? with us. Thank you so nice much. Come to you. back Thank to you. talk to us soon. Janis Kontopoulos there, Thank the CEO of the Affix Group. We'll speak again soon. Okay, still to come. An electric shock. If you make a Rivian pulling the plug on a deal with Mercedes. Find out why. Next. Welcome back to First Move. And Wall Street is up and running this Monday, and it is a higher open across the board. Stocks trying to bounce after last week's losses, the worst week, in fact, for the Dow since early November. Plenty of challenges for global investors across the coming days, including three big central bank interest rate decisions, all expected to hike. Members of the U.S. Federal Reserve will give their projections, too, for how high rates will rise next year as well. It's their so-called dot plot. Fed officials in the quiet period ahead of their expected rate hike on Wednesday. No quiet period, though, for Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. She's out with an optimistic economic outlook for 2023. And she gave that during an interview with CBS 60 Minutes. 2023 going to look like for the average consumer? So I believe inflation will be lower. Um, I am very hopeful that the labor market will uh, remain quite healthy uh, so that people can feel good about their finances and their personal economic situation. I mean, it's been decades since the American consumer has had to deal with inflation like this. Yes, and I hope that it will be short-lived. The new U.S. consumer price data will be released on Tuesday. Now, electric vehicle maker Rivian has scrapped a deal to build vans with Mercedes. Worsening market conditions have hurt the American firm, whose shares are down 74% year-to-date. The two companies say they may still collaborate in the future. Joining us now is CNN's Anna Stewart. Anna, good to have you with us. The CEO has said to us in the past, this is a cash-burn business. And he emphasized that, as we've mentioned, Mm -hmm. the share price is down. On first look, it feels like classic retrenchment. Talk to us about this deal and what's going on. Well, this was going to be Rivian's first international expansion. And actually, what I find most surprising, I think, about the whole story is the fact the deal was only signed three months ago in September, so not long ago at all. It does suggest market conditions have changed considerably since the summer. Now, we can look at the sort of issues that face all of the big car manufacturers and particularly the EV startups. We have similar stories from Faraday Future, from Arrival here in the UK in terms of cash burn. And we know, for instance, that Rivian is burning through cash. We know that it laid off 6% of its workforce over the summer. And we also know that they halved this year's expected output citing supply chain disruption. I thought it was really interesting in the statement when they say they're going to pursue the best risk-adjusted returns on their capital investments. That is just clearly not in Europe right now. They have their plant in Illinois. They're planning to double down with a new plant in Georgia near Atlanta. Europe right now off the cards. And I think there are other factors that play there as well. Julia? Yes, and you and I were discussing them earlier, and I think we, as usual, completely agree. We had bright drop 
the commercial EV vehicle maker on the show last week, and he was talking about how the economics are working for them. And he mentioned the Inflation Reduction Act and working out the potential demand kicker coming from the subsidy specifically for commercial EV vehicles. If you tie that into this Mm -hmm. decision, I think it makes perfect sense. Why would you be in Europe? It is not mentioned in any of the statements today, but it was one of the first things, of course, we all thought when we saw it, because that is one of the major changes since that deal was signed. And not much has happened in terms of the EU trying to row back uh, in terms of trying to persuade the U.S., diplomatically, I suppose, to change things. There have been calls from some members of the EU's parliament to file a complaint with the WTO, particularly over the subsidies. There are also calls, of course, for the EU to simply try and match what the US is doing. But that will be so difficult because in terms of the tax cuts, well, that's up to individual member states. In terms of the subsidies, the EU currently behaves according to very strict state subsidy rules. That could change. The mute music, I have to say, from the EU Commission President Ursula von der Leyen has been changing in recent weeks. But hey, this is the EU. You have to get 27 member states to agree on absolutely anything. And as we can see, businesses are moving very fast. Yeah, either you're behind efforts to tackle climate change or you aren't. And you just have to make it work because this is the United States now really putting their um, money where their mouth is. And then Europe kind of has to stand up, I think. No doubt we'll discuss again. Anna Stewart, thank you for that. Okay, so as a come, choppy waters ahead, perhaps. Maersk appoints a new captain to steer the ship giant through a looming recession. We speak to incoming CEO, the incoming CEO, next. Welcome back to First Move. Danish shipping and logistics giant Maersk has appointed a new CEO to steer the company through a period of slowing demand. Freight rates around the world have dramatically fallen as supply chain chinks have lessened and amid concerns, of course, have economic slowdown mount. It comes as the company continues to strengthen its land-based logistics operations. Joining us now is Vincent Clerk. He's Maersk's incoming CEO. Vincent, fantastic to have you with us. Um, congratulations on the new appointment. I know you've been at Maersk since 90. So you have a little bit of experience um, of this business. You're also the first non-Dane, I believe, in the country's 118-year history. Explain how this moment feels. It feels uh, it feels a bit surreal. Thank you, thank you for having me. It feels a bit surreal. Uh, it's it's been uh, it's been a culmination of I think 25 years of, of work here in the company, and and especially the last few. Uh, quite exciting years with uh, with the strategy and the team that we have here. Uh, and this is still unfolding and it's still really dawning on me. I mean, you also currently head up the oceans and logistics business. So in terms of internally, I think Maersk know you very well, not to mention, as you said, more than two decades of, of experience there. But if you look at the, the share price reaction today, I think the timing and the transition perhaps is a little bit of a, a surprise. Can you explain the timing decision of this. uh, CERN, of course, was a regular on the show and we've sort of got used to speaking to him. So explain why now. Well, I think that after the the last couple of years of supply chain disruption and and pandemic uh, shocks to, uh, to the world, we're entering into we're entering a new season, uh, a season where we're faced with some pretty uh, difficult headwinds uh, with a lot of uh, different uh, macroeconomics challenges that uh, that we will have to deal with in uh, in the coming years. And the assessment for the board was that as we enter into these choppy waters, 
it was important for them to to have a team in place that would take a, a long time horizon and, and would really be committed to seeing those challenges through and get us to the other side and continue the execution of the strategy that we have had, uh, that we have developed with Sarn here over the past few years. He said to us the last time we spoke that he'd be surprised if Europe wasn't already in recession, that dark clouds were on the horizon. And it was a much repeated phrase, I think, that sent a bit of a shiver around those who operate in the global economy in whatever form. Do you see the challenges and the outlook in the same way that he did? And does you coming in as a CEO really change anything material in terms of how the company tackles all of those things, whether it be the short term or the medium term? So we're certainly seeing a significant inventory correction in, uh, in North America and in Europe alike. We're also seeing that this energy crisis that really was started with the invasion of Ukraine is, is really taking a bite also of the disposable income that a lot of consumers have, especially in Europe. And that creates a macroeconomic environment that is quite filled with dark clouds, as, uh, as CERN was mentioning uh, last time. So we're certainly seeing this. I think what we can expect with respect to how we're going to deal with it is, is a real uh, decisive uh, answer to make sure that our cost base is, is right-sized for the challenge, to make sure that the, uh, we have focus on protecting the integrity of the service that we deliver to our customers, but also certainly hunker down on, uh, on, on the cost base and, and make sure that we can see those challenges through in the best possible way. At the same time, also, customers have or companies have significant challenges still with their supply chain and challenges where Maersk can play uh, an incredible role in helping them uh, strategically deal with, with some of these uh, challenges. That is what this strategy about expanding beyond uh, maritime transport into, uh, into landside logistics uh, has been about. We have quite a lot of momentum on this. We have still a lot of potential, a lot of legs for that strategy, and we'll also continue to exploit that in, uh, in the month, in the quarters, and in the years to come. Yeah, I can see your excitement about that too, as, as customers continue to rethink um, their supply chains, and clearly that plays certainly into your strength and experience as well. Um, just to go back over what you said, because I do think this is important in terms of perhaps resizing or refitting the business for, for what the at least the next couple of years perhaps brings. Are, are we talking about the risk of perhaps job cuts, spending cuts? Perhaps you rule nothing out at this stage. Yeah, so I think I'm, I'm going to keep an open mind for, for a while, mm -hmm. make sure that we take all the right decision. I think what is important for me to underline is Maersk is actually uh, a growth company and has been, uh, has been hiring uh, a lot of colleagues here uh, of late. And we expect this growth uh, fueled by the, the expansion to the land side logistics to continue. So it, this is not about really downsizing the size of the organization, but it's about really managing our productivity and, uh, and our cost base proactively and make sure that we do not land in a situation where we have to get into, uh, into massive layoffs and so on. At the same time, on operational expenditures, there are clearly things uh, that we can do now as we get out of the congestions that we have had and all the costs that have accompanied these congestions in the past two years, there is a lot of measures that we can take and that we need to take rapidly in order to right-size our cost base to the maximum possible extent. You also wrote a fantastic op-ed for Time magazine, and I read it, I believe, in January of this year. And you said, look, this is how my industry can go green. Talk to me about your ambitions for the green energy transition and emission-free fuel. What does the kind of 
conversation about sort of refitting the spending plans mean for green energy plans for the company? Do you keep them maintained? Do you plan to accelerate them? Can you give me a sense of where you're headed and where Maersk therefore is headed in the future in that regard? So the roadmap that we've put forward with a full decarbonization by 2040 and the targets that we've put uh, of, of, uh, for 2030 already, that does not leave a lot of room for further acceleration, but mm. the commitment that we have <laughs> to this path to decarbonization is, is absolutely uh, the, the same that, that we have. This is a part I think that is important. We have a climate emergency, we have an energy crisis, if anything uh, needed to underline the, the need that we have to actually do something about it and, and change the, how we source our energy. And I think this is the fantastic background and, and I do believe actually that even though the beginning of it, getting these first dominoes to fall is, is, uh, requires a lot of focus and a lot of work, on the long run, this will be a fantastic business opportunity uh, for everybody because completely changing where we source energy from is going to drive capital and infra infrastructure investments for decades. And the companies that lead in that field, they will have a serious advantage uh, for the long run that they will be able to, to really capitalize in terms of business opportunities. And that's certainly what we're positioning AP Mollemersk for. Yeah, there's no shortage of challenges. There's neither no shortage of opportunities, too, to your point. Um, I have about a minute left. Um, Final message, I think, to investors today, perhaps that are cautious about what this means for them, but also perhaps a final message to current CEO and outgoing CEO, of course, Søren Sku. No, I think, you know, Søren Sku has certainly been the most influential person in my career. I've spent 11 of the last uh, of the 25 years I've spent at Maersk working in his leadership team. Uh, learning the ropes uh, and also developing uh, a lot of uh, perspectives on, on what it takes uh, to, be a, to be a CEO. So certainly a lot of appreciation for the many years that we have spent together and a lot of excitement uh, for, for being able to take this fantastic company uh, to the next level. Yes, you're enthused and energized. Sir, great to Absolutely. chat to you and we'll speak again soon. I can see. Thank you. <laughs> the incoming CEO there of Maersk, Vincent Clerk. We'll speak soon. Thank you. All right, coming up on First Move, a historic moon mission, a successful splashdown of NASA's Orion capsule. That's next. Welcome back to First Move and a successful splashdown. NASA's Artemis 1 mission has come to an end after almost 26 days. It's the first phase of the space agency's new program to send astronauts back to the lunar surface. And the return of the Orion capsule coincided with the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 17 moon landing. Kristen Fisher joins us now. How appropriate. Um, fantastic news. So great to see it safely land. Talk to us about how important this is for the next mission, because this is the key. Absolutely critical, Julia. I mean, th this final test, the splashdown, what it was really all about was testing that heat shield that lines the bottom of the Orion spacecraft. And that heat shield is the heat shield that's going to protect future astronauts on board the spacecraft from those really hot temperatures that that spacecraft experiences on re-entry. We're talking 5,000 degrees Fahrenheit. That's half the surface of the sun, twice as hot as what any other uh, human-rated spacecraft or spacecraft designed to carry humans uh, has had to endure on re-entry. Re and so right now, engineers, scientists going over that data, making sure the heat shield did, in fact, 
work. Uh, but hey, if it didn't work, we would have seen it, Julia. That spacecraft would have burned up on reentry. Uh, by all accounts, NASA feeling very good about this, very confident after so many delays. Uh, remember, this rocket got hit by a hurricane just five uh, days before lifting off. Uh, after all those delays, NASA really celebrating a successful splashdown in the Pacific Ocean. You can see the Orion capsule bobbing right there yesterday afternoon. Uh, and now it's going to be making its way back to the Kennedy Space Center for some final tests, Julia. Yeah, it's quite interesting to get a sense of the scale of it now as well when you see that boat next to it. I was just trying to look through the window to sure. see if we could see that Snoopy plush toy as well, <laughs> because, of course, that was the, the key passenger there. Um, also, just 10 hours later, we saw SpaceX launch a Japanese moon lander. Can you tell me what, what that was about, too? Because it does feel like we're sending things up into, a, up into the skies and lower Earth orbit in particular on a continual basis. It's this whole new era of, yeah. of space exploration. We've been so focused on low Earth orbit, the orbit right around the moon for so many years, decades even. Now we're really starting to see uh, the very beginning of this, what they call the cislunar economy. This is a, a lunar economy. We're not there yet. It's still a ways off. But this launch that you're seeing right there of uh, an iSpace lunar lander on top of a SpaceX rocket uh, really kind of marks in a way the beginning of this next chapter. And if iSpace, this Japanese company, Tokyo-based, is successful, what it means is they will become the first private company to land on the moon. I mean, this is something that only governments, countries, very big and powerful countries uh, have been able to do up until this point. So this would really mark a turning point for them. Uh, and, you know, it really just also kind of shows you how much more focus, time and attention is going to be placed on the moon in the coming years. You now have NASA and its international partners there with Artemis, hopefully building a base on the south pole of the moon. Julia, you've also got China, who has almost identical lunar ambitions. They want to build a base also on the south pole of the moon. And then you have these private companies like iSpace entering yeah. the mix, too. So a lot going to be happening there over the next few years and certainly decades. Well and truly a space race, and you really do bring it to life. So thank you so much for joining us on the show to explain it all today. Kristen Fisher. Thanks, there. Julia. Thank you. And finally, to mark their first Christmas as king and queen consort, Buckingham Palace has released this image of Charles and Camilla's official Christmas card. And the photograph is particularly poignant. It was taken at the Braemar Highland Games back in September, just five days before Queen Elizabeth passed away. She wasn't there, of course, but certainly there, I think, in spirit. And that's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. You could search for at CNN and Connect the World is up next. I'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.